Blog Talk Radio. This is Know It All. Welcome to Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education. Many, many thanks again to D.C. High School student Trayvon for our theme music. As you know, we aim to make you, our listeners, know-it-alls about education, law, policy, and practice that affect you. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity and public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Today we are talking about sexual harassment and bullying in schools. Title IX is the legislation that is best known for its impact on girls' athletics in school. Last year, Title IX turned 40 years old. In 1972, the year that Title IX was signed into law, only 30,000 girls participated in high school sports. Today, more than 3 million girls participate in high school sports. Certainly growth to be celebrated. But today we're going to talk about what else Title IX covers, sexual harassment and sex-based bullying. I am thrilled to have with me today Dr. Susan Strauss, sexual harassment and bullying expert and author of Sexual Harassment and Bullying, A Guide to Keeping Kids Safe and Holding Schools Accountable. Good morning, Susan. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Allison. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Well, you know, I think there are a lot of people out there who are unaware that Title IX has more applications than just girls' athletics. There is actually nothing in the law that explicitly mentions athletics. Title IX prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex by schools and school districts, and you and I actually had the opportunity to work together when I was an attorney at the Department of Justice in the Civil Rights Division, and you were our expert in a Title IX sex harassment and sex assault case. This was a case where several elementary school boys were sexually assaulted in the boys' bathroom by an older boy in school, And the Department of Justice was involved because the students and their families alleged that the school and the school district did not stop those assaults from occurring and did not prevent future attacks. So schools do have an obligation under Title IX to not only create opportunities for girls and women to participate in sports, but to protect all students from discrimination and harassment that is based on sex. Can you tell us first, Susan, what sexual harassment is, and then we'll talk about bullying? Sure. The two terms get conflated frequently, and there tends to be a fair amount of confusion, particularly more recently with the, what I say, a tsunami of bullying that's going right across the country in terms of the media and schools and parents. Sexual harassment is a form of, we'll talk about it in terms of student misconduct, but a, a form of student misconduct that is sexual in nature, and is unwelcome by the target of the behavior. And by sexual in nature, it means that it could include such things as sexual jokes, sexual gestures. Sometimes the uh, girls, and primarily the girls, but also the boys at times, might be grabbed sexually in their breasts, in their genitals, in their buttocks. 
sexual assault can be, or pardon me, sexual harassment can be as minor, if you will, as staring at an individual in a sexually provocative way up to and including sexual assault and rape. So it runs a a long gamut of behaviors. As I said, the behavior has to be unwelcome. It also has to be severe, persistent, and pervasive enough that it interferes with the student's ability to get a free and equal education. And that's where it sometimes is difficult for folks to really understand what that means. Indeed, it is sometimes difficult for juries to make that decision. So when we're talking about severe and or pervasive, it is sometimes subjective. In other words, it's up to the student to decide. Yet when it goes to court, it's objective in that a jury has to ask itself, well, would any other reasonable student, and let's say that it was a girl, would any other reasonable high school girl or middle school girl or fourth grade girl feel that this sexual misconduct was so severe, so persistent, that it would interfere with her ability to get an education or take part in any school activities. And that part becomes challenging because the behaviors themselves may appear to be sexually harassing. They may feel as though they're sexually harassing to the student and his or her parents, but they may not necessarily rise to the level from a legal perspective of being sexually harassing. So it has to be unwelcome, has to be severe, persistent, and pervasive that it interferes with the student's ability to get an education or take part in school activities based on a reasonable student. And then the fourth element is that it has to be sexual and or gender-based. So in other words, it has to be including those kinds of behaviors I outlined before, anything from very provocative sexual glances, sexual jokes, sexual comments, sexual touching, assault, and rape. But it might also be something that's in the form of sexual bullying, which we might call gender-based sexual harassment, where a student is selected for bullying, if you will, but based on their gender and based on the fact that other students or perhaps teachers are questioning whether that student is gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. So as you can see, it's fairly complicated, and it's not quite as easy as what we think that it would be. And sexual harassment and bullying are two different things. Bullying by itself doesn't trigger any civil rights protections. What is the difference between sexual harassment and bullying? That is such a wonderful question, and I get asked that frequently, and I write about it. In fact, that was one of the reasons I wrote my book. In my work as an expert witness, what I'm finding is that schools are routinely mislabeling the student misconduct, and by mislabeling it, they don't hook into the proper response to the behavior. Bullying occurs because one student 
oh, maybe he doesn't like another student. Maybe they're jealous. Maybe the the bully is jealous of the victim because the victim gets more attention. Maybe the victim is smarter in school. Maybe the victim is more attractive. Maybe the victim gets more of the teacher's attention. Maybe the victim is better in band or debate or football. Uh, Maybe the victim is more popular. Conversely, maybe the victim is viewed as weak and vulnerable. Maybe the victim doesn't speak up in class. Maybe the victim has some, oh, odd behaviors or doesn't wear the newest label or shoes or hairstyle. So the bullying occurs just because somebody doesn't like somebody and they're annoyed with who they are and what they look like. It doesn't have anything to do with the student's, what I'm going to say is a protected class. And right now we're talking about sex, so it would be based on sex or whether the student, depending upon the state, might be uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and that is a state law right now. It's not covered under federal yet. Uh, But it also goes beyond just sex, even though we're talking about Title IX and sex today. It could mean that the child is disabled in some way, that the victim is of another race, another ethnicity, maybe um, a different religion. So there's other variables besides just sex as well. So if the bullying occurs to a student because they are in another protected class, as I just mentioned, then it no longer is just bullying, but may may fall under discrimination and harassment under, say, Title IX or Title VI or 504 or some of the other laws, federal laws as well, or under the state's human rights laws. So those are the differences. And and in thinking about and talking about how schools have conflated bullying and harassment, what is the danger in doing that? Well, if they if they mislabel, and of course part of what they need to do, this is another one of the dangers in the schools, is if a student comes forward to complain about a misconduct, a form of misconduct, there needs to be somebody who investigates as to whether or not the misconduct occurred and was the misconduct bullying or was it sexual harassment or another form of harassment. One of the problems that I have found in my work is that the individual tasked with investigating has never been taught how to investigate. In addition, if that investigator does not know the difference between bullying and harassment, then despite the investigation, they don't form an accurate opinion. If the behavior is bullying, it requires, pardon me, if the behavior is sexual harassment, it requires a different response by the school based on the law than does bullying. So Title IX requires that the school must remedy the situation when a child has been sexually harassed and that the school must take steps to remedy the culture of the school to minimize any further sexual harassment. There are no such requirements for bullying, even though personally I think the same response by a school district should occur. It rarely does, and it rarely occurs for sexual harassment or harassment of students based on other protected classes as well. 
So it's important for the district to know the difference because it will make a difference from a legal perspective as to how they respond to the complaint and what they do to change the culture in the school district. Mm-hmm. I, I think this distinction is is critically important for um, educators to know, especially um, that, you know, bullying is a behavior that can be sexual harassment or can be racial discrimination and harassment um, or can be some other form of, of discrimination and harassment, but bullying itself is not the same as sexual harassment. Um, so I, I appreciate that distinction. And then with respect to sexual harassment, what do you tell schools and educators about their responsibilities? They have a responsibility to both prevent and intervene in sexual harassment. Now, I think they need to do the same for bullying, but we're going to focus on sexual harassment. So the question is, what kinds of prevention strategies should be designed and implemented and evaluated in a school district? One of those should be very comprehensive policies that are very clearly delineating the difference between bullying and harassment. And those policies should be function as a resource, or the resource for students, resource for educators, for um, resource for administrators, the school bus driver, even the lunch lady. They should ensure that it, the steps to follow if harassment has occurred are clearly delineated in the policy the policy needs to be written in age-appropriate language. Even policies that I review in schools these days have a lot of legalese that even adults would not understand, let alone students. I recommend that students take their policy and give it to a group of high school students, maybe uh, in an English class, and have them write it in student language then I think the attorney needs to make sure that it's still appropriate and well-written and not saying anything uh, that's covering the law appropriately, but that it needs to be written in age-appropriate language. Uh, That policy, then, should be reviewed and get input from students and parents and educators as well as the school board administrators and legal counsel. It needs to be widely disseminated. Now, that dissemination can be on the school's intranet, but I recommend that it also get placed in the student handbook. The other thing that I've seen in my expert witness work is that schools do not put the entire policy in the handbook, and instead they inform readers that if they want to read the entire policy, that they should go online to read it. What school districts sometimes fail to realize is that there are still homes that don't have computers. And there are still homes in which some adults in particular are not computer savvy and don't know how to navigate through a district's intranet. So I think that they need to make sure that the full policy is widely disseminated in student handbooks as well as as they can in communication that goes out to parents. So that's one thing regarding policies. And there maybe needs to be more than one policy. There might need to be a policy that includes 
cyber harassment and cyber bullying, anything dealing with social media. Uh, if they've got a violence in the school policy, this uh, sexual harassment and bullying are both forms of school violence, and they need to be discussed within those kinds of policies as well. So policies is, are one of the first things that need to be created. They need to be developed. They need to be disseminated. And then they need to be actively communicated, which means at least once a year those policies need to be communicated to all factions related to the school, educators, students, staff, and parents. And if there's a wide problem of harassment in the school, then it may require that there's active communication of that policy more than once a year. The other thing that should happen is there needs to be comprehensive training for all employees of a school district. Again, that's administrators, educators, all school staff, bus drivers, even those adults that end up um, working and volunteering for the school, they also need to be trained in harassment because they need to be able to recognize it when it occurs. They need to know who to report it to and not to ignore it. The training should be done, from my perspective, by a subject matter expert. And the training is more than just, oh, here's a review of our policy. Be sure you let so-and-so, the Title IX coordinator, know if you see it. That's not enough to be called training, and yet that's what districts are referring to as training. Training needs to be something that lasts, from my perspective, at least a half a day, preferably a full day, and include harassment of all protected classes and be able to delineate the differences between bullying and harassment. It needs to be experiential learning so that the learning that occurs includes case studies, lots of question and answer, breaking up into small groups, and really, really delving into the topic. It needs to include very clearly the recognition of sexual and other forms of harassment. And for teachers and administrators to be able to role play and practice how do you recognize it and when do you do, what do you actually say to the students? How do you, you, what do you, how you, do you implement a teachable moment? When do you know that there needs to be consequences such as suspension, whether in school or even if a child needs to be terminated from the school for the, for the year, suspended? Um, so we, all of that needs to be included with lots of discussion. I see very little of that, if any. So that's another component for prevention. And then another component is to ensure that students are taught about sexual and other forms of harassment, about the differences between harassment and bullying, what to do if they see it, who to report it to. There's a lot about teaching kids as bystanders what to do. I think that merits that teaching, but I think what happens is that we are often expecting the kids as bystanders to intervene on harassment and bullying when, in fact, the educators are not intervening. And when students intervene, they often face retaliation by the perpetrator of harassment and the offender of bullying. So it's unlikely that students will, in fact, function as a gatekeeper and intervene when they see a classmate offended. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be taught how to do it. I think that that's very good for them to learn that. 
I think that as adults we're being unrealistic to expect that students are basically going to be intervening and doing the work that the adults should be doing. The training should again be very experiential in that students are actively engaged in discussion and role playing and case studies and there should also be it should also be age appropriate. For example, we put together a curriculum this was years and years and years ago through the Minnesota Department of Education. I think it's available online that was geared specifically for elementary students and we used puppets. The puppets were very very nice round full cuddly puppets and their names we had three of them dignity was the name of one respect the other and equality was the other one was a snail one was a turtle and one was a frog i believe and what we found is that the kids the little ones in particular would come up and they would disclose especially to the turtle because the turtle's head could retract back into its shell so you have to have age appropriate curriculum and it has to be fun for the kids so that they can be actively engaged. Another way to get students engaged is to use students themselves to do some of the training. Uh, sometimes what we did was we had high school and even middle school students go into the elementary grades and do some of the training. And we tried to do use students that were interested in doing the training, learning how to train, and we made sure that we did not use just sort of football players or hockey players or basketball players, but that we use kids that were in debate, that were in band or orchestra, so that we were not always supporting this masculine, hegemonic type of culture, but trying to demonstrate that it was okay no matter what kind of activity you were in, or even you maybe you weren't in any kind of school activity, but you were just a student that was interested in learning the skill of training and working with younger kids. So those are some ways to bring it in. And it's not just bringing student training in through the health class. For example, you can do it in um, social studies. You can do it in history. You can do training in math class and talk about the statistics that are involved with students and, and even adults that are sexually harassed in the workforce. So there's some very creative ways of bringing this about. Those are some of the primary prevention strategies that need to be included in a district. For intervention strategies, you use a teachable moment. And that can mean bringing those students that are guilty of the misconduct into some private tutoring that would delve into training in a more in-depth way. It might include the, um, oh, what are they calling it now? I can't remember the name. You might remember it, uh, Allison. Um, I want to say social justice. Is that the trite, right term? No, Were you restorative justice. Thank and, you, restorative and justice. Peer mediation program. And, and, right. I would be careful to not use peer mediation any time with sexual harassment because it's a legal issue. But I think for those students that are uh repeat offenders using some restorative justice works to really get them to understand it. I think restorative justice can work even for non-repeat offenders, but it, it can't be a standalone. Um, so I think that that can be effective. But then you also need additional consequences in terms of um, suspension or sending students to uh, any kind of counseling. And the students that would go to counseling would be not only the offenders, 
but also those that have been victimized by it. And that counseling, I think, is important, and I think it should be paid for by the school district. And that includes counselors that are not school counselors, but rather actually going to psychologists that can help uh, minimize and alleviate it. The school then also needs to do an assessment. Where in the school district are these types of misconducts more typically likely to occur? Is it in certain hallways? Is it in the bathrooms? Do you need to put a a school monitor, uh, an adult, in the bathroom? Do kids have to be uh, escorted to a bathroom either by another student or by an adult? Uh, Do we need to put um, cameras in the school buses? Does there need to be an adult that rides the school bus? So there's all sorts of strategies that can be implemented. Can there be a speak-out where one whole day, for example, was maybe sponsored by student council or other groups within the school where a whole day there's a break from typical or maybe just in the morning or just in the afternoon where there's a break from typical classes and students go and hear speakers on different aspects of, oh, everything from dating violence to rape to sexual violence. Uh, but I think there needs to be both a prevention and an intervention perspective from the school district. Do they, as an intervention, need to reexamine their policies? Do they need to make sure that their policies are posted or at least a big poster that's posted that says, if you're being harassed, follow these steps? Um, and that informs students that are being harassed. These are the different people in the school that you can go to, but there must be an intervention. And if the same students are consistently perpetrating, then merely speaking to them and merely doing a teachable moment is not enough to change their behavior, and it would not be enough to be changing the culture. So culture change within the school is a huge initiative that involves bringing in stakeholders such as the school board, parents, educators, sitting down at the table and establishing a strategic plan with measurable goals and objectives. How are we going to change our culture? What metrics do we need to gather? How are we going to implement this change initiative? How are we going to monitor it and evaluate it? And who's going to be involved in that monitoring and evaluation? I do not see school districts taking that initiative, unfortunately, until there's been a lawsuit or a formal complaint to the Office for Civil Rights. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot. Yeah. Allison? And, you know, Title IX is a civil rights statute, and so typically, as you mentioned, sexual harassment claims are handled by the, the United States Department of Education, Office for Civil Rights, and that office requires that um, schools, certainly that become aware of allegations or complaints of sexual harassment, must first investigate those allegations and then take steps to end the harassment and then eliminate any hostile environment. But but schools are also responsible for prevention, and, and that, I think, is what you're touching on. You know, prevention of future instances of harassment is critical, Um and that's a necessary part to to making sure it's probably one of the most obvious um, steps that can be taken to to ensure equity for students in school. Um, 
And you mentioned earlier there can be gender or sex-based dimensions to bullying that occurs in schools that then potentially triggers federal civil rights protections. Um, bullying of students who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. Uh, bullying of students who are perceived to be gay. Bullying of students who are gender nonconforming or who don't act the way that society thinks they should as a male or female. Uh, all of this is potentially discriminatory conduct based on sex under Title IX. So what do you think that schools should know about their obligations under Title IX for protecting students who uh, are are gender nonconforming or may be perceived to be gay? I think that that has to be included in the training for all teachers and staff and administrators as well as for students. I also believe that the Title IX coordinator, which all schools are required to have by Title IX mandate, that that Title IX coordinator needs to be very, very familiar with the Title IX guidance. Uh, and those of you that are listening, it is available online. It, I believe it's about, oh, gosh, it's like a 48-page document. It's just got a wealth of information in there about what schools should be doing. And parents, those of you that are parents that are listening, I encourage you to go on and read that. And OCR, Office for Civil Rights, has a number of other guidances as well online that deal with other forms of discrimination. But GLBT is in the discrimination and harassment of GLBT, and I add Q at the end of that for questioning, students is rampant, not only by students, but by teachers. And it, in fact, many, many years ago, the Human Rights Association uh, drew out that the United States was among the worst in terms of abuse to GLBT students. And that needs to be considered just as much as traditional, what we might think of as traditional sexual harassment in policies, in training, in consequences, teachable moments, etc. And uh, I don't see that done either in my work. What do you think that parents and families and communities should know about sexual harassment and bullying in schools? Well, ideally, they should be able to recognize and know, excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, the difference between the two, and and be sure that when you're talking about the two, that you use the correct term. That if it is bullying behavior, to use bullying, but if it's sexually harassing behavior, to use the term harassment. I think that will help to diminish the conflating of the terms. For parents, it's important that you you know what those behaviors are and that you ask your kids periodically if they are experiencing various behaviors. I would not say to them, are you getting bullied or do you see much bullying, because they may not know what that is. Instead, use observable, objective behaviors and say, do you see kids, and I wouldn't use the word teasing either or being made fun of, might vary a little depending upon the age of your student, but say such things as, do you hear kids being called um, naughty names or negative names or derogatory names. Again, this is going to be, depend upon the age of your child. Um, what kinds of names do you hear? Do you see kids being hit in school or shoved or pushed? 
do you hear kids being made fun of by being pointed at or somebody making nasty comments to them because of the clothes they're wearing or the shoes they have on or their hair, those sorts of things. So make sure you use specific examples. In terms of sexual harassment, you ask if you hear words that or jokes or comments to one person to another that are based on that person being a girl or a boy or whether you hear sexual jokes that um, deal with sexual activity or behavior. Do you see girls or boys touched very often or kissed when they don't want to be kissed or grabbed in their breasts or in their genitals or in their buttocks? So you ask very specific pointed questions. If When you ask those questions, then, and especially if they've occurred to your child, Ask how it's made your child feel. How is it impacting your child in terms of wanting to go to school, wanting to go to that particular class, wanting to walk down a particular hallway, wanting to go to the cafeteria, wanting to go into the locker room after football practice or soccer practice or even after their gym class. Uh, So you try to get a sense as to where it's happening. And then ask your student how they've responded when when the offender has perpetrated against them. Did they respond? You don't want them to feel guilty if they didn't because most often they don't. You may want to talk to them about what would be some possible responses that you could give to John or Susie when they make a sexual comment to you and talk that through. Um, what would be their fear in doing so? And to find out if they would be comfortable going to a teacher that they trust or the principal or the Title IX coordinator or even the superintendent. Now, if you find out that the behavior that's occurring is being repeated and is very consistent and is really negatively impacting your child or you're very uncomfortable with it, then I would recommend that you go to the teacher if it's happening in a classroom and inform that teacher, and then ask the teacher, what will you be doing? I expect that you will be taking steps to make this stop. Make sure that you find out what those steps are, and then ask the teacher to get back to you after the teacher has implemented those steps. If you find that it continues in that classroom, inform the teacher that whatever steps she or he took were not effective and that you want more done. If it continues to exist, then go to the principal. Make sure during this time that you are documenting everything your child has told you that's occurring, as well as who you went to speak to, what the date was, how that teacher responded. If you went to the principal, what that date was, how that principal responded. And when you go to these people, give them a copy of your documentation. Make sure that you make the documentation easy to read. You can just use bullet points. You don't have to use sentences. And be sure that you document how this is impacting your child. If the principal does not take action, and oh, by the way, when you meet with the principal, bring your harassment policy with you and be sure that the principal follows the policy. That means there has to be an investigation. So ask the principal questions. Has the person who's going to be tasked with the investigation been trained in in doing so? Are they competent in it? Make sure that investigation occurs. Have the principal get back to you. Document. 
If the behavior still does not stop, go to the superintendent. Bring all your documentation. If it still does not stop, go to the school board. So you've got to keep at it, and sometimes it requires all of that. The school is bound by its policy, and it must follow the policy. The school board should likewise make sure that the superintendent is making the behavior stop. If the behavior still does not stop, then you may go to the U.S. Department of Education Office for Civil Rights, or you may go to your state's civil rights um, organization. You may also consider going to the media. Sometimes the media can get some things done that parents can't. Um, if it is cyberbullying, sometimes and cyber harassment, your best bet is to also call the police. Also, if any of the behavior that is occurring is sexual, unwanted sexual touching, call the police as well. And one thing I want folks that are listening to remember is that the research shows that your child does not need to be the direct recipient of either the bullying or the sexual harassment in order to be impacted by it almost to the same degree as the direct target. So by your child even being aware that it's occurring, by hearing it and by seeing it, your child is still being negatively impacted by the behavior. So that needs to be kept in mind as well. Document, 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 document. That is so critical. And make sure that your documentation is very, very detailed and very specific with dates and times and what exactly was said using verbatim quotes, identifying any witnesses and what they were a witness to. It's a lot of work for, for parents and for victims <coughs> excuse me, to do all of this work and documenting. And in documenting, you have to sort of live through it again. So for your child to help you in the documenting, it can be... It can be hard for your child, so you might have to do it in, in spurts. But do it because it is critical and bring it to the teacher, the principal, the superintendent, and the school board if the behavior does not stop. And get demanding if you need to. And ideally, both parents, if there are two parents, both parents should go to that teacher and the principal and the superintendent and the school board. I hate to say it. But when dad is there, it sometimes carries more clout than when it's just mom. That's the sexism inherent in the complaining. So, again, try to have both parents attend the uh, complaint process when you go. Allison? And one thing that I, I want to add to what you said is that you did say that every school is required to have a Title IX coordinator. Um, and uh, in, with instances of sexual harassment, it's also important to note that during an investigation or even the the, the cleanup phase or the the, um, the phase during which you're putting in place remedies to protect the victim of the harassment, it's important that the victim not bear any burden. So, um, you know, transferring the victim out of a class or um, requiring the student, uh, the victim, as I just read this morning um, happened at a university, requiring the victim to sign a statement saying that he or she will not discuss what happened to, to him or her with anyone else. 
um, those are potentially overburdening of the the victim and shouldn't happen either. And of course, you know, the Department of Education, Office for Civil Rights, and the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division will receive complaints of sex-based discrimination from students, parents, family members, or communities too. Um, I want to thank you, Dr. Susan Strauss, for being here this morning. Thank you very much, Allison. And if I could say one more thing, I think that if people want more information, the book that I wrote is really spells out exactly what schools should be doing and tells parents what they can do to advocate for your child and to make sure that schools are accountable. So much of what I've talked about today is in the book as well. So thank you so much for having me, Allison. I hope that listeners, that you learned something and uh, and good luck. And thanks again, Allison. Thank you so much for for being here. Dr. Susan Strauss is a sexual harassment and bullying expert and the author of Sexual Harassment and Bullying, A Guide to Keeping Kids Safe and Holding Schools Accountable. Her website is www.straussconsulting.net, and you can find her on Facebook and Twitter. You are now officially certified know-it-alls on the full power of Title (laughs) IX. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education, on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter, find ABC on Facebook, and read my blog at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week.